Good morning again. I invite you to take a copy of the Bible and turn to John chapter 11, verses 45 to 57. You can find this on page 898 in the Bibles provided. In the preceding verses in John, Jesus has gone out to the tomb of Lazarus. He's cried out, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb wrapped in bandages. And Jesus commands that he be unbound and let go. We'll pick up the text in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, a brief prayer. Lord, would you give us eyes to see and hearts to believe that we may receive all the things that you have for us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the raising of Lazarus has probably been one of the most dramatic things we've seen so far in the book of John. And after all, Lazarus was dead for four days in the tomb. His body had started to decompose. And Jesus brings him back to life. It's really headline news, isn't it? It's a well-known event in the Bible. You know, if we were to take a poll today of everyone in the city of Parma and ask them, hey, can you tell me something about the story of Jesus and Lazarus? Do you know what happened? I bet you a fair percentage of them might know, right? I wonder if we did that same poll, though, for the passage we just asked. Hey, can you tell me what happens right after Jesus raises Lazarus? Can you tell me the story of Caiaphas' prophecy? Maybe 1%, maybe 2% of the people might know. You know, in one sense, the drama of the passage we just read is not quite as big and obvious as the drama of Lazarus being raised. It's a little more subtle. But when we take the time to really dig into this drama, we find the drama is just as gripping. 
Because at the heart of this passage is this question, what is to be done with Jesus? And that question that the Pharisees ask in verse 47, what are we to do with Jesus? It's a question that echoes down through the centuries, and every one of us has to answer it for ourselves. What am I going to do with Jesus? We'll see most of the people in this passage respond to that question uh, with a whole lot of scheming, right? Trying to get Jesus killed. And they rage and they plot in vain, taking counsel, as Psalm 2 says, against the Lord and against his anointed. But Psalm 2 also says, he who sits in the heavens laughs and he holds them in derision. See, in John 11, beneath sort of the, the churning surface of all this scheming, there is a deep and powerful and swift current running through this text. And it's simply this, that God's plans never fail. They never fail. And God's great plan is nothing less than to give his son the nations as an inheritance. And you see, no scheme of man can thwart that. No scheme of man can thwart God's eternal purpose to redeem and unify sinners from every nation through the death of his son. And friends, today as we consider God's sure purpose, my prayer is that our hearts would be strengthened. Strengthened to give up our own flimsy little kingdoms and to pursue Christ's unshakable kingdom instead and to pursue it with abandon. Well, I have four headings for us today. The first is kind of an introduction to the passage. I'm calling it, uh, as you can see there in your bulletin, a pregnant pause. And then we have three headings that all deal with the concept of irony. Irony. We'll see the Pharisees' ironic fears. Then we'll see an ironic prophecy. And last, we'll see an ironic scheme. So ironic fears, prophecy, and scheme. Okay. But first, a pregnant pause. Now, that's kind of a suggestive phrase, I know, right? <laughs> a pregnant pause. But really, I think that's what we have here in verse 45. Actually, our passage starts, if you will, not in verse 45, but really in the blank space between verses 44 and 45. Because you see, that word, therefore, it points us back, and it tells us that Lazarus being raised has sort of an ongoing relevance for what we're about to read. Now, I explained to the kids earlier Lazarus being raised is not an event unto itself, right? It's a sign. And John tells us the signs in this book were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So you see at the start of verse 45, Lazarus has been raised. The people have seen the sign, but will they believe? That's the million-dollar question. It's not, uh, hey, Lazarus, you were, you were dead for four days. Hey, tell us what heaven was like, <laughs> right? Now, we might want to know that, but you see, that's not what John would have us focus on. Because you see, the real drama here is, will these people believe that Jesus is the Son of God and so have life in his name? Friends, I've called this a pregnant pause very intentionally. Because this pregnant pause leads to new life. New life in Christ. Look at me with verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. 
and they're born again, raised to newness of life in Christ. They see the sign, and they see what it points to. You see, friends, verse 45 is a model for you and for me for how we need to respond to the evidence of Jesus' resurrection power. We know later in John that Jesus himself will conquer death and be raised again. We know about the sign. But will we believe? Will I believe? Will you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing so have life in his name? That is the million-dollar question. A pregnant pause. Well, in verse 46, we get a scene change. So far, the camera's been focusing on these new believers, but now it cuts over to a much darker scene, really one of the darkest scenes we've seen so far in John. Because some of these Jewish people, although they've seen Lazarus, and they'll even go so far as to admit it was a sign, they've seen the sign, but yet they refuse to believe. And they go tell on Jesus to the priests and Pharisees, and in turn, the priests and Pharisees go and they gather the council of religious leaders and they proceed to tell them all their fears about Jesus. Fears which we'll see really end up being filled with a lot of irony. So our second heading is ironic fears. Ironic fears. Do you remember learning about irony maybe in high school English? High school English was maybe longer ago for some of us than others. Uh, maybe some of us aren't in high school yet, so this, this term might be a little bit unfamiliar. Irony. There are different types of irony, but I think one of the most important types for us to grasp, to help us really unlock this passage, is a type of irony where you have someone who's trying to do something, they're trying to plan to bring about a certain end result, but their plan ends up backfiring. And the plan actually brings about the opposite of what they expected. Did you ever read that short story uh, by O. Henry, The Gift of the Magi? Right? Um, it's kind of a heartwarming Christmas story. You have a husband and wife, husband and wife at Christmas. They want to buy each other Christmas gifts, right? But they don't have a whole lot of money. So what do they do? Well, without the other one knowing, they each go out and they each take their prized possession and sell it and use the money to buy accessories for the other one's prized possession, right? Which, of course, they just sold, right? So it's Christmas, they open their presents, and they have accessories to these presents they no longer have, right? And it's ironic at a certain level, because for all their best intents to buy meaningful gifts, it's completely subverted by the plan, by the steps that they take, because their gifts end up being useless in a certain sense. The plan backfires. And I think this helps us see something of what's going on here in John 11. Although it's a lot darker in John 11. We see the priests and Pharisees have these fears about Jesus. Fears that lead to a plan that will backfire. Now let's just look at the fears themselves, first of all, before we dive into the irony. So the priests and Pharisees say to the council, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? And then they give us this chain reaction of fears in verse 48. If this, then that. They say, if we let Jesus keep doing these signs, then everyone's going to believe in him. If everyone believes in him, then his followers are going to make a big stir. 
If his followers make a big stir, then Rome is going to get nervous. And if Rome gets nervous, then the Romans are going to come and they're going to destroy our temple and they're going to send our nation into exile. Now, at first glance, we might listen to those fears and we might think, you know, that sounds kind of reasonable, right? I mean, isn't Israel God's chosen people? And isn't the temple the place where God meets with his people? I mean, shouldn't the Pharisees care about these things? Yes, absolutely they should care. Because Israel and the temple are beautiful, precious things. But something's fishy here. Because there are at least three points of irony in what the Pharisees say. And when we unpack this irony, we start to get the sense that maybe the priests and Pharisees don't care about Israel and the temple quite as much as they're letting on. Three ironies. Irony number one. The priests and Pharisees are afraid that Jesus is going to end up destroying Israel and the temple. But ironically, instead of destroying them, Jesus actually came to establish Israel and the temple. Now how? How does Jesus do that? How does he establish Israel and the temple? Well, let's think. What did the temple mean to the Jewish people? I think we can summarize it in three words. God with us. For the Jewish people, the temple meant God with us. God's presence in the place where sin was atoned for. Now, how do you say God with us in Hebrew? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God dwelling in the flesh among them, about to atone for sin, and they don't see it. Why not? Well, Jesus said the Pharisees were lovers of money. And I think their fears about losing the temple are really fears about losing the, the money and the status that the temple brought them. And if that's true, it really makes a lot of sense that the priests and Pharisees can't see who Jesus is. Because, friends, if the only thing that you would care about is money, well, then when you read the story of the rich young ruler where Jesus tells this man, go take all your possessions, sell them to the poor, and come follow me, if all you care about is money, that story is not going to make any sense to you. Or if the most important thing in your life was your 401k guaranteeing a secure retirement, and then you see Jesus, a man of sorrows, with no place to lay his head, no retirement plan, he just wouldn't make any sense to you. Friends, whether you're a millionaire or whether you're struggling to make ends meet, if you find that you are obsessed and controlled by money, would you pray that God would open your eyes to see what true riches are? Paul says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich, not rich with American dollars, but rich in the righteousness of Christ. Irony number one, Jesus came to establish Israel in the temple, but the Pharisees don't see it. Irony number two, this one's a bit more historically involved. The priests and Pharisees think that doing away with Jesus will keep Israel and the temple safe from Rome. But ironically, actually the opposite happens. 
Because doing away with Jesus doesn't protect Israel from Rome. It actually ends up contributing to the Romans destroying Jerusalem. You see, Jesus was crucified in about the year 30 or 33. And then 40 years later, in the year 70, the Romans come and they utterly destroy Jerusalem. And in Luke 19, Jesus tells us that the destruction of Jerusalem would be due, at least in part, um, that it would come as a sign of wrath. God's wrath upon the city for putting Jesus to death. You may remember it's Palm Sunday and Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, would, would that you had known the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, which the Romans did to Jerusalem in the year 70. And Jesus says, They will tear you down and not leave one stone upon another because, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Emmanuel visited Jerusalem and the priests and Pharisees missed it. Now, I don't want us to get sidetracked here, okay? Because the main point of John 11 is not for us to point fingers and say who's responsible for Jesus's death. No, the point here is simply that what we do with Jesus matters. It matters. Can you see that we will be judged based on how we judge Jesus? Jesus is the judge, yes, but we will be judged based on how we judge him. The priests and Pharisees, they misjudge Jesus, and ironically, it ends up costing them the very things that they were trying so hard to preserve. Doesn't it illustrate what Jesus says? Whoever would seek to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake in the Gospels will save it. Friends, will you examine yourself today and be honest with yourself? Is there anything in the world that you love more than Jesus and his Gospel? I don't know. What about your reputation, how people think about you in the neighborhood or the office? Friends, if you're worried about what Jesus might do to your reputation, can we see that in eternity, the only reputation that matters is our reputation before God, our reputation of being identified with Christ? Oh, that we would have eyes today to see what really matters. The priests and Pharisees misjudged why Jesus came. They misjudged what would keep Jerusalem safe. And now irony number three, they misjudged the effect that Jesus' death would have on people believing in him. You see, verse 48, the Pharisees are afraid if they let Jesus keep doing these signs, then everyone's going to believe in him. So to stop people from believing, they put him to death. But of course, we know Jesus' death does not stop people from believing. Ironically, Jesus' death becomes the very foundation upon which people will believe in him. Because after they put him on a cross, they put Jesus in a grave. And as we sang, no grave could e'er restrain him. And up from the grave he arose. And now millions of people have come to believe in him. Not because he lived, but because he died. And now lives forevermore. Wow, three points of irony in verse 48 alone. We might be tempted to ask, how did the Pharisees get it so wrong, right? Is it just they didn't have the benefit of historical hindsight? I mean, if they had lived today and could look back and see, oh, we see how it's going to work out, now we'll believe. 
I don't think, I don't think so. Because I think the priests and Pharisees' real problem was either that they couldn't or wouldn't see who Jesus was. Friends, if today you have eyes to see and ears to hear that Jesus is the Son of God who died for you, he who has ears to hear, let him hear and trust in him today. Well, the priests and Pharisees have expressed their fears, and now we get an ironic prophecy from Caiaphas. Caiaphas, uh, this powerful man who's the high priest, an ironic prophecy. Well, Caiaphas, he has had enough of the priests and Pharisees saying, well, what are we to do? Uh, he's ready for action, so he tells them, you know nothing at all, right? And what he really means is, you guys are idiots, <laughs> right? You don't know how to get things done. Now, it's interesting because Caiaphas is actually speaking the truth at two different levels here. At one level, if the priests and Pharisees' goal really is to save the temple and Israel at all costs, then insofar as they have not yet articulated a plan to stop Jesus, then from a human level, it's true. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know anything at all. Caiaphas knows, but they don't. But you see, then there's this second deeper level where Caiaphas saying, you know nothing at all, is kind of like, as we would say, the pot calling the kettle black, right? Because when it comes to Jesus's identity as the son of God came to save Israel, well, nobody, not Caiaphas, not the priests, not the Pharisees, nobody knows anything at all in that regard. You see, it's just like, it's like this onion of irony with just layer after layer of meaning. Caiaphas speaking better than he knows. He says things that are true at one level, but they're also true at a higher level he's not aware of. And just when you thought that we were done unpeeling the onion, wow, we get maybe the greatest double meaning of all time. Because without knowing it, this perverse man Caiaphas is about to become God's prophet. And from Caiaphas's twisted mouth are about to flow the pure words of the gospel. Verse 49 to 50, Caiaphas says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Can you see the double meaning there? Before we jump right to the gospel, let's start with the lower meaning at the, at the purely human level, what Caiaphas meant to say. Because let's make no mistake about it, Caiaphas does not mean to preach the gospel here. Caiaphas may be impatient with the priests and the Pharisees, but he still 100% shares their fears about Jesus as being sort of a political threat. And so what Caiaphas means to say here is basically, let's kill Jesus to get Rome off of our backs, right? See, Caiaphas looks at Jesus and he sees in him a troublemaker, a ne'er-do-well, and a rebel. I don't know. Um, but I imagine, I don't know, maybe Caiaphas was reading his Bible one day, trying to figure out what are we going to do about Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, he comes across 2 Samuel chapter 20. This chapter is a story about a troublemaker, about a man named Sheba, 
Caiaphas starts to read about this troublemaker, and his interest is maybe piqued, thinking, hmm, I wonder if this can help me out in my situation. You see, this man, Sheba, he rebels against King David, and then Sheba goes on the lamb, and he holds up inside of one of Israel's cities. And Israel's army is about to destroy the entire city to get to this man, Sheba, until a wise old woman comes out and says, hey, we'll give you the rebel, don't destroy our city. Right? And so that's what they do. They hand him over. Sheba dies to spare the city. And apparently, the story was well known in Jesus' day, as, as D.A. Carson points out. I wonder if Caiaphas reads 2 Samuel 20 and thinks, At Jesus, he's just like that Sheba. He's a rebel, a troublemaker, threatening the nation. We need to do to Jesus what David's army did to Sheba. Do you see the irony of Caiaphas seeing Jesus as a rebel when actually it's Caiaphas who is rebelling against Jesus as the Son of God? You see, what Caiaphas is doing is the same thing we read about earlier in 2 Corinthians. Caiaphas is regarding Jesus according to the flesh. He's regarding him from a worldly point of view. And you see, his extreme plan to kill Jesus it's really just an overflow of his heart. This way in which he sees Jesus according to the flesh. Friends, his, his plot may seem very distant to us, but can we see, if we're honest, haven't we all regarded Jesus according to the flesh in some way, shape, or form? And of course, we would never say it that way, right? That doesn't sound very spiritual, so I regard Jesus according to the flesh. But every time we've ever sinned, hasn't that really just been a way of saying, Jesus, you are not the ruler of the universe. I kind of think you're an imposter, and therefore you do not have the right to tell me how to live my life. Times when we've maybe secretly in our hearts thought, boy, Jesus is he's causing trouble in my life. Maybe he restricts my sexual freedom. Maybe he tells me I don't have the right to love my money even though I work like a dog to bring it home. I'm sure we can multiply examples, right, of, of times when maybe we've resented the claims, the exclusive absolute claims that Jesus has made on our lives. But there's good news because for all the times we've ever regarded Jesus according to the flesh, you see, Jesus is not like Sheba, this rebel. Jesus is a lot more like Joseph. We read earlier, right? Joseph goes out to his brothers who hate him, hate him so much that when they see him coming, they say, here comes that dreamer making trouble for us, making our lives miserable. Let's kill him. No, let's ship him off to Egypt. That'll work out well for us. Oh, it worked out, it worked out well for him, all right. <laughs> because Joseph becomes Pharaoh's number two in Egypt. And comes to oversee the grain shortage, the grain storage, so that when famine hits, Joseph is able to feed those same wicked brothers who wanted him dead. Joseph's brothers regarded him according to the flesh, not realizing that the very same one they wanted to kill would be the very same one to save them. Do you see the parallels there with how Caiaphas regarded Jesus? More than that, do you see the parallels there with how you and I have so often regarded Jesus? Seeing him as maybe an inconvenience when he's the very one who's come to save us. But again, more good news. 
Because what Caiaphas meant for evil, God meant for good. Because whereas Caiaphas meant that Jesus should die to save the people from Rome, God meant that Jesus should die to save the people, not from the wrath of Rome, but from the wrath of God. His righteous wrath towards sinners who've looked at Jesus and thought, he's an imposter, a troublemaker. And we read in 2 Corinthians that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. Why in the world would God do that? We've all sinned. Why shouldn't God count your sin against you? Maybe that thing that you did back a while ago, you hope no one ever finds out about. Should God forgive you because enough time has passed? Or should he forgive you because maybe no one ever found out? Or maybe he should forgive you because you've since done 10 things and penance to try and counteract the bad you did? Or, I don't know, maybe he should forgive because, as it were, God knows you've already felt bad enough about it yourself and tormented yourself. Friends, no. Could your zeal no respite? No. Could your tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone because it's Christ who must save and Christ alone. Friends, do you believe this wondrous mystery that when Christ the Lord was upon that tree, that he wasn't up there for himself, but that he was taking the place of ruined sinners like you, like me? You see, that is what Caiaphas prophesied without knowing it. And it's ironic, again, isn't it? Because if there's one person in all of Israel who's supposed to know how sacrifices work, who's supposed to know the ins and outs of substitutionary atonement, it's the high priest. And the high priest misses it. You almost think we need a better high priest. Right? One who really understands how substitution works. One who understands God's plan. And who sees that the ironic story of Joseph is really just a foreshadowing of the Messiah. You see, Jesus really is the greater Joseph. Because through Joseph's suffering, he saved Israel's family. Yes, but he also saved all the Gentiles in, Israel, in Egypt too, right? And in John eleven fifty two, 52, it says Jesus will die not just for Israel, but also to gather in the Gentile children of God. And here we are today. A primarily Gentile church some 6,000 miles from Jerusalem. Friends, can you see how this very congregation is actually evidence that God's plan never fails? Friends, may the Christians sitting around you today strengthen your trust in God, that his purposes are being fulfilled even in this very room. Because we're scattered far from Jerusalem, yeah, yet gathered in to God's family actually gathered in the same way that Jewish people are gathered in through faith in Christ alone. Well, the ironic prophecy is coming true despite the schemes against it. And actually a scheme is exactly what we get in verse 53. Ironic fears lead to an ironic prophecy, lead to an ironic scheme. Verse 53 says, from that day on they made plans to put him to death. They pursue their evil scheme all the while playing right into God's hands. Now, we should ask, if their evil plays right into God's hands, 
Does this excuse them for what they do? Right, God using their evil for good, does that let them off the hook? No, it does not. Friends, do not ever think that it is okay to sin under the pretext of, oh, well, God will work it out somehow. My friends, do not put the Lord God to the test. God is sovereign over men's affairs. Yes, that's true. But we as humans are also responsible for our actions. It's a mystery, but it is the clear testimony of Scripture that God's sovereignty never negates our responsibility to do what he has called us to do. Yet the religious leaders pursue their scheme. And apparently Jesus knows about it because in verse 54, uh, it says, Therefore he no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went towards the wilderness with his disciples. Now, whether he knew about this plan through divine omniscience, or whether he also knew about their plan sort of through the grapevine, it doesn't say. But one thing is for certain here. Jesus withdraws, not because he's afraid, but because he knows that his hour had not yet come. But Jesus' hour is coming soon. Because verse 55 says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Yes, it was. The Passover to beat all Passovers. The Passover when the final perfect lamb would be slain. And many of the Jews went up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Again, the drama, the irony here. Some people purifying themselves outwardly, even as they have murder in their heart. Maybe some people purify themselves simply unaware that a once and for all purification is about to take place. Now, the, the, chief, the priests and the Pharisees have put out, as it were, an APB. That's an all-points bulletin if you don't watch cop shows. Um, they put out a bolo, a be on the lookout, right? And everyone's been deputized to be on the lookout for Jesus. And some are looking for Jesus maybe just out of curiosity. Maybe some really would hand him over if they had the chance. But that phrase in verse 56, they were looking for Jesus. It's a poignant reminder, isn't it? that not everyone who's looking for Jesus is looking for the right reasons. With the time we have left, can I ask you, why are you looking for Jesus? You're here on a Sunday morning for some reason. I take it probably has maybe something to do with Jesus. Um, are you looking for him to maybe add a little religion to your life, a little bit of respectability? Or maybe you think Jesus can help you with your marriage or your finances. You know, Jesus does have things to say about our marriages and how we spend our money. But if we go to him first and foremost looking for advice on those things, we'll actually never find him. Because you see, the only people who ever really find Jesus are those who go to him looking as sinners, looking for a savior. And the real irony here is when you look for Jesus as a sinner looking for a Savior and you find him, you realize that the only reason that you found him is because it was he who was actually looking for you all along. Now, of course, he, he knows where you are, right? If you're ever going to play hide-and-seek with Jesus, 
he would be the master seeker, right? Because he is the omniscient Lord of the universe. He knows where you are. He knows what brought you here today. He knows how you got to where you are in your life right now. And he knows where you're going tomorrow. Don't you want to be found by this man, Jesus? Emmanuel, God with us? Then call out to him right now in faith. Confessing his righteousness is all you need to stand before God. And the instant you do that, he finds you. And then, then something amazing happens. Because this man who would die for the nation, well, he now bids you come and die. And it sounds bad, doesn't it? It sounds like it's going to be the end of you. Um, But ironically, again, ironically, it's actually the very beginning. Because the death he bids you die is a death to all those things that would keep you from experiencing true joy in him. All those things you've been pursuing that are about as fulfilling as watered-down skim milk. You see, he bids you abdicate from your own little kingdom of self-ambition, and instead, he asks you to come and pursue his kingdom and share with others the joy that you found in him. And you see, you can do that joyfully without fear, Because as we'll sing in just a minute, his kingdom cannot fail. And he rules over earth and heaven. And the keys of death and hell have been given to him. One last thought. How many examples of irony did we see in this passage today? I don't know, maybe six, maybe seven. You know, in literature, it takes a really skilled author to do irony well. Friends, God is the author of history, and he is a skilled author, and he knows what he's doing, and his plans will never fail, so you can trust him. You can't beat him, but why would you want to? Because when you understand what he's done for you in Christ, you won't want to beat him, you'll want to join him. Will you join him today, turning to Christ in faith? That is the million-dollar question. Well, let's pray. Oh, Father, we have heard your word. Would you cause its truth to be established in our minds and hearts? Would you cause any unhelpful comments that have been made to be forgotten? Search us, O God, and know our hearts and see if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. We ask this for the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray.